I'm Jonathan Goldstein, and you're listening to Wiretap on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius Satellite Radio 137. Today's episode, My Weekend in Dragon's Throat. At the time, I had never reported a news story for the radio. Not really. I mean, there had been a couple local stories had been sent on. Like if someone was stealing grocery carts at the local Piggly Wiggly, they'd send me out with a tape recorder so I can interview an irate assistant manager about what the world was coming to. But I had never been sent to any place like Dragon's Throat. Dragon's Throat is a strip of desert in the southern tip of California where weekend road warriors and dune buggiers gather on long weekends to raise hell in the dunes. They come out to Dragon's Throat with only a couple of ideas in mind. To ingest copious amounts of beer and drugs and to achieve great heights of speed. The kind of speed that only a souped-up dune buggy can allow. I could tell you that none of this was my thing. Dune buggies, the desert, drugs, none of it. But when the assignment editor approached me about flying out there for the President's Day weekend to Dragon's Throat, a place that the New York Times had referred to as the most illegal place on Earth, I knew it was a chance to prove myself, a chance to advance my fledgling radio career. I wasn't the first pick for the job, but because of a stomach virus that was going around, half the newsroom was out sick, and so it fell to me. And even though I was scared, I was still excited by the opportunity to shine. So it was decided that I would travel to Dragon's Throat and record the President's Day weekend in all of its filthy, decadent, violent glory. And along the way, I would prove myself an ace radio reporter. But of course, as will become abundantly clear to you, none of this would come to pass. Instead, my car would be lost, my equipment ruined, and my budding career would practically be destroyed. So what I now present to you is the story that never aired, along with the remaining tape that still exists, of my weekend in Dragon's Throat. As I started doing research about Dragon's Throat, I came to quickly see that it was not the off-road adventure of our fathers, a colorful world of cartoony, headlight-eyed dune buggies with mufflers that stutter out greetings. It was a realm of souped-up, sinewy sandrails. Sandrails are dune buggies stripped naked of their fiberglass bodies. The dunes themselves are six miles wide and 40 miles long, and in recent years, Dragon's Throat has become a haven for lawlessness. The locals say the crowds have been getting bigger, younger, and more prone towards destructiveness. People are thrown from buggies, crushed, stabbed, and shot, and the President's Day weekend was looking to be the most crowded and violent yet. In preparation for the trip, I bought a video off the internet called Dragon's Throat, colon, What Really Happens. There was a choice between the censored and the uncensored version. I bought the uncensored version, which was subtitled What Really, Really Happens. Aside from the more traditional footage of drunken desert fistfights, misfired firecrackers exploding in people's hands, and quads overturning, there was bonus footage, which mostly consisted of a chubby friend of the filmmakers being repeatedly busted in on in the hotel bathroom. After watching it, I had several shots of whiskey while leaning against the refrigerator. This is something I do when I'm anxious. The hum calms me down, and the whiskey? Well, whiskey makes me drunk. But just then... It did not help. I realized I was ill-prepared for desert living. It was clear I had made a big mistake. 
Testing, testing, one, two, sibilance. A couple days before setting off, I sat in my room alone and checked and rechecked my equipment, making sure it was all in working order. Sally sat on a mat of sarsaparilla. Hey, loser. What are you up to? I hate when you just burst in like hey, that. Is that thing on? I was living with a roommate at the time. Gregor, don't. A pre-med student by the name of Gregor. He was always busting into my room, and it was usually for no other reason than to mess with my head. Get out. It's amazing to me that they give you this equipment to work with, because this mic looks kind of expensive. Well, it, it, it's it's a professional rate. I'm you know I'm going as a radio reporter. Yeah. So shouldn't they send someone who knows what they're doing? I know what I'm doing. You know what you're doing. <laughs> Please. Do you know what you know what they have in the desert? They have scorpions that go inside your sleeping bag at night, and they curl up and they bite you and kill you. That's what they have in the desert. Why are you doing this to me? You know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm nervous as it is. Did they tell you about the boots? Never take your boots off, because also scorpions go in your boots. What? I'm not bringing boots. I'm, I have running shoes. I, well, you should bring the running shoes because you're going to need to <laughs> outrun the snakes that are going to eat your carcass. Look, I don't care what you, you know. I know what you're trying to do, you know, but it's not working, you know. And I, I'm, I'm very excited about this. Of course, it was working. But it wasn't like Gregor was telling me anything I didn't already know. And in the days before I flew out, I found myself starting to get mysterious stomach, head, throat, and chest pains. I didn't want to go to the lawless desert. I liked laws. Laws that protected me from being chained to dune buggies and dragged through the sand by desert pirates with names like Gooch. I wanted to stay at home and watch weekend television. What if Dragon's Throat has no clean bathrooms? What if there are bullies in Dragon's Throat? What if the only available drinking water is spiked with LSD, and I am forced to drink a tall glass by someone larger than me, and it makes me see a fire-breathing salamander the size of the Chrysler Building shimmering in the desert heat? The day has finally come, and I fly out to Yuma, Arizona. And once I'm there, I ride down the 78 from the airport in a rental. I've decided to use the tape recorder to record some of my musings as a kind of audio diary. As I cruise along, I commit some of my thoughts to tape, possible openings to the story. They come out to the desert. No, wait. They make a pilgrimage to the desert. Everyday citizens whose only plan is to go completely insane. No, whose only plan is to go completely crazy. His only plan is to go completely insane. Riding along on the highway, I start to see sandrails and quads riding in the desert on the side of the road. Thinking I found the action, I pull over beside a group of guys playing with their pit bull. Excuse me, excuse me, sir. I roll down my window and ask one of them if this is indeed Dragon's Throat. Have you ever been to Dragon's Throat? No, this is my first time actually, and I'm sort of I'm I'm not, I'm not sure that. Well, let I... me tell you something. <laughs> when you get the dragon's throat, you'll know you're there. <laughs> okay, nice, nice time. Ominous laughter by a man wearing the filthiest neckerchief I have ever seen. He tells me I'll know dragon's throat by the thick dust cloud I'll see from a mile away. I will later learn that that cloud is called the dragon's throat fog. And that it's created by the sandstorm kicked up by thousands of desert vehicles revving through the desert all at once. I imagine myself arriving in Dragon's Throat, appearing out of the fog, a man of mystery. I approach the biggest among them, their leader, a 400-pound man with a handlebar mustache and a World War II aviator helmet named Smokestack. He leans against his machine, a souped-up Humvee the size of a suburban backyard swimming pool. 
Pulling out my microphone, I ask him if the general rule is that the owners of the hugest, most chromed-out machines usually have the most to prove in terms of their manhood. After he administers a merciless and prolonged Dutch windmill-style fist beating to the top of my head, he tells me that I have earned his respect, and we would become admiring high-bye friends for the rest of the weekend. The first sign of Dragon's Throat is the Dragon's Throat General Store. It's just down the road from all the off-road mayhem, and it's the only real store around for 27 miles. In the parking lot, people sit around and drink beer while staring at each other's vehicles. I decide to commit some of my thoughts to tape as I go inside for some last-minute supplies. There's something about the starkness of the desert that brings out the absurdity in a man's soul. Sort of like the way black velvet brings out the blue in a clown's eye. Uh, it, it's just a tape recorder. I'm, I'm a radio reporter. I'm doing a story out no, here. No, no, no! Turn it off. Uh, I don't it, want no just... tape recorders in my store. Turn it off. The woman you hear interrupting my chain of thought is named Old Lady Dragon's Throat LeBlanc, and she is the store proprietor. She sits behind the counter and looks to be anywhere from 55 to 85. After I turn off my recorder and explain to her that I'm a fledgling radio reporter, LeBlanc starts to mellow, and even gets confiding. She tells me that in the twenty odd years she's been here, people have come to rely on her. Illustrating the point with sitcom-like timing, a man walks in and asks if she's got any polydent to stick his tooth back into his mouth. She tells him she doesn't, but then she suggests he buy himself some gum and use a chewed piece to get it back in there. Trident's good, she assures him. But juicy fruit is the best. I search her face for some trace of irony. There is none. Kate LeBlanc, aka Cactus Kate, aka Grandma Dragon's Throat, is a tough old bird in the tradition of tough old American birds past. Turn of the century gold rush women who sold hobos exorbitantly priced shovels, but always kept a piece of sweet salt chunk on the burner for unexpected guests. Dragon's Throat has been kind to her. The long weekends are a boon. She tells me that she charges five dollars to use the toilet and fifteen for a shower. A teenager comes in to take a shower with his girlfriend. Morning, Grandma, he says. I'm not really his grandma, she explains, but I don't let them in if they don't show respect. We used to have civilized people here, she says. They acted decent. They cracked jokes. Now all they do is bitch about the prices. When I ask her if she has any advice for the dragon's throat novice, she tells me to be careful not to let anyone run me over. I put down my supplies on the counter: two bottles of water, three oranges, and a pack of camels. And Grandma Dragon's Throat presents me with a bill for thirty-seven dollars. Outside in the parking lot, I ask a couple of kids drinking beer where the action is, and they tell me about the drag races that are due to start over at Gecko Road. To get to the drags, you have to make your way across a few hundred feet of sand. Dune buggies on their way back from racing zip by. A monster truck with what appears to be airplane tires comes straight towards me. I freeze, and for a moment I imagine myself being run over—not just hit, but a full-on cartoon-style flattening. I trot out of the way. I resent having to trot. We are lined up along the side, watching the races. 
There is no median or protective fence. There is only the crowd, the quads, and the desert. These are self-admitted attention seekers. But they are after the good kind of attention, not the toilet seat around the neck kind. They are looking for the kind of attention that only a man who understands the beauty of a flatulating four-cylinder turbo engine can give to another man. It's usually the most wild-looking vehicles that drive the slowest. They go by like tired lions after a killing spree. A man in a pastel pink car that looks like a Miami Vice pinball machine rides by us, like he's looking for a parking space at the local mini mall. Everyone stares at him, completely impressed. A kid goes by on a piece of metal attached to a rope, attached to what appears to be a souped-up postal delivery truck. I learn that this is called sand sledding. Suddenly the rope snaps and the boy goes flying off, and the crowd goes crazy. As he tries to get up, he is almost run over by a quad. The crowd goes even crazier. I run over to him to record his initial reaction to almost being killed. Whoa! That was amazing. This is Zach Clark, a 20-year-old pizza delivery man from Sacramento, California. I was trailing behind my friend's car, man. I think I popped my shoulder, twisted my wrist. I learned from Zach that all of what I am seeing is nothing compared to Competition Hill nothing. or Comp Hill. Zach says that after nightfalls, that's where the real action happens. In Dragon's Throat, Comp Hill is the holy of holies. It's where the dune bug years go to really race, dragging up the biggest mountain of sand in the area. Comp Hill is the place where all the videos are made, the place where topless women hang off the side of pickup trucks as they heroically make their ascent to the top. Where else can one showcase a homemade boat on wheels or a souped-up golf cart? A grocery store parking lot? Where's the majesty in that? During weekends past, uniformed rangers wouldn't even dare enter the area. When they've tried, they've been targeted by volleys of sand-filled beer cans. When talking about Comp Hill, one weekend whoop-de-dooer breathlessly tells me about how once a ranger's foot was run over by a speeder he had tried to ticket. I find myself wanting to go to this place called Comp Hill, and this surprises me. Normally, hills of any sort do not interest me. Further, competitions put me off. I know that going there is important for my radio report, but it isn't just that. So far, I just haven't seen enough. Not enough mayhem. Not enough Dionysian delight. Not enough speed. I want to experience the kind of all-out, give-it-all-you-got speed necessary to set a man's soul free. I find myself growing a little angry. Angry that my soul has not been set free. Hopefully, Comp Hill will unlock its cage door and allow it to soar untethered. That night, I pull my car off the concrete lot where I parked it and commence my journey into the desert and into the void of pitch-black night. And off I sail into the sandy, licorice candy of night to chase after turbo dreams and vehicular phantasms. Oh, for... No sooner than I do so, the car becomes stuck. Oh, come on. Impossibly stuck. I floor the gas, and I only succeed in digging myself further into the sand. It's at this point that I start to panic. I try to reverse to get myself out of there, but it's no use. I get out of the car and walk back to the concrete. It's a short walk. Then I make my way back to Grandma Dragon's throat store to use her phone. When I get there, she begrudgingly brings me around the counter. Is it local? She asks. 
Local calls are five dollars. How can you make a local call when you're surrounded by miles of desert in every direction? I tell her I have to call Canada. International calls are twenty dollars, she says. I pay her the money and dial. Hello, Gregor. Yeah. Oh God! Thank God you're home. Listen, what do you do to get a car out of the sand? Hmm. I think you don't want to drive it into the sand. You can get stuck. It's too late. The car is stuck. The more I rev the engine, it's it's just sinking lower and lower. Sounds like you should get a tow truck. There's no tow trucks. I'm in the middle of the desert. Your dad's a mechanic. You're supposed to know about stuff like this. Well, my dad's actually a mechanical engineer, but all you need to do is take a shovel and dig it out. I don't have a shovel. You don't know how much sand there is here. All right. Well, first of all, are you in the sun? Because you got to get out of the sun. That's the first. It's night. All right. Well, you might want to sleep under the car. How much space is there? Are you watching TV in my room? What's the difference? You're going to die in the desert. It's not funny. I'm not going to be able to get back to the hotel room. I'm not going to make it to Compel. The, the story's a complete disaster. No, but really, if you don't make it back, can I have your shoes? Okay, fine. Forget it. I thought you could actually help me. You know, it's no wonder that guys like you practically lost the war for us in World War II. What are you talking about? I mean, you got no fighting spirit. Big deal. You got stuck in the sand. You're going to fall down and cry like a baby. What's the matter? You got two broken legs? No, but I mean it's the middle. It's pitch black, and 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 it's you know it's miles You're away. You're so hot to try to get a story. How do you think you get a story? You think you sit at home and lay in bed watching TV in your friend's bed, waiting for stories to come to you? Start walking. That's how you get a good story. I guess. I guess you're right. Okay. Okay, thanks for that, Gregor. I'm going to get out there. By the way, that guy from the video store called again about fried green tomatoes. I returned it like two weeks ago. What's he kind of pretty peeved. I re- All right, th- thank you. Yeah, fried green tomatoes. I, I am. I'm getting off the phone. I'm getting off the phone. Right. Yes. Okay, Grandma. Thank you. All right, Gregor. I got to go. I got to get off the phone. I'll see you at home. It's around midnight now, and although I am essentially invisible, I am intent on walking to Comp Hill. Hey, what are you doing out here? Need a ride?、Uh, yeah.、Uh, Fortunately, after only a few minutes of walking, a group of men in a pickup truck offer me a ride. I am told the one driving is named Gerald. He has a sort of jowly, older John Wayne quality. He chews a toothpick, and when I thank him for the ride, he somersaults the mangled splinter of wood in his mouth and says nothing. Seeing that I am not in the company of conversationalists, I pull out my trusty tape recorder to dutifully record some of my own pensies for later use. We bump along through the sand, my head almost hitting the ceiling. Being off-road feels transgressive, like you've abandoned culture itself for the roller coasterness of nature. It is at this point right here, just after hitting a tremendous bump. That the recorder and mic springs loose from my grasp and flies across the cabin of the truck. After several frantic minutes trying to get it to start working again, I realize that it's completely broken. I pull out my steno pad, and from this point on, I write down the evening's events the best I can. We arrive at Comp Hill, and right away, even though I'm still in the truck. I can feel the sand in my eyes and mouth. Rock music thumps through the air, which is windy and cold. The place is packed with people, dancing, revving engines, and screaming at the top of their lungs. My stomach feels like a sloshing soup bowl filled with guppies. Tim, the guy sitting beside me, hands me over a beer. I thank him. 
No need for thanks out here in the desert, he says. And although I have no idea what he's talking about, I nod knowingly. I open the beer and drink. I look around. There's nothing but blackness for as far as the eye can see. Blackness and desert. That's the thing about the desert. No matter where you are, it all looks like desert. Suddenly, there's a face poking itself into the open car door window. What the hell are you doing here? The face asks. It is an angry yelling face. Fortunately, it is not yelling at me. It's yelling at Gerald, who continues to stare straight ahead. Then, calmly, Gerald gets out of the driver's seat and the two men walk away from the truck. The yelling face does most of the talking, though it's no longer yelling. And while it talks, Gerald solemnly chews his toothpick. What's going on? I asked Tim. Gerald and Otis, says Tim. Those two raced here last Thanksgiving. Gerald beat him and Otis wants a rematch this weekend. Wow, I say. That'll be a fun one to watch. What watch? Tim asks. We're going to sit right here and go with him. Suddenly, we were a we. I was a we. I don't like being a we, especially when the we is illegally racing in the desert in the middle of the night. But before I could protest or even get out of the truck and lose myself in the crowd, Gerald is back and taking his place behind the steering wheel. The crowd, operating like a single one-brained organism, parts for us as we make our way to the starting line. There's a woman there, a bandana around her face, holding a baton lit at both ends. My first impulse is to try and talk everyone out of this. This can't be safe, I say. Why not an old-fashioned foot race? But then suddenly the baton is lowered and I am hurling backwards against my seat. No seatbelt, no nothing. Out the window we are neck and neck with Otis, who appears to be driving a similarly souped-up pickup truck. I grip onto the seat in front of me and scream my head off. The men beside me also scream, but theirs is a different kind of scream. While mine is a scream meant to communicate something along the lines of "Please God, don't let me die," theirs is a scream that simply says "Yeehaw." I have never driven this fast in my life, and just when I am convinced that there's no way for us to go any faster, Gerald reaches over to the dashboard and presses a light little blue button. Here comes the nitro! Someone screams, and then I literally feel my heart throw itself against my spinal cord. I feel my eye sockets peel back and my tongue bunch up into the back of my throat. We pass Otis's car as though it's standing still. The world outside the truck windows blurs. Everything becomes silent. We are speed itself. We are an arrow made of sunlight. We are pure. At the finish line. I get out of the car, drenched in fear, sweat. My knees are wobbly, and I'm nauseous. Yet oddly, I am also exhilarated. All night, I have been worried about how I was going to get the car out of the sand, how I was going to be able to drive to the airport, what I was going to do about the destroyed tape recorder, and how I was going to make this whole mess into a seven-minute story for the radio. But just then, at that moment, I didn't care. People swarm towards us. A woman in a tank top and facial paint runs up to me and hugs me. I hug her back. Someone hands me a shish kebab stick with bits of meat on it, and someone else hands me a can of beer. We have won. I lean against the truck, convinced somehow that I haven't been merely thrown onto the winning team by happenstance, but that I have somehow earned it. 
that I have been chosen, or that I have chosen, at long last, to win. There is sand everywhere. I feel it in my arm hairs and on my lips. I find myself remembering what it was like to be a kid, playing in the sandbox and digging and digging, feeling like I could just keep going all the way through to China. Even though it was only a box, the sand itself contained all of this hidden mystery and potential. I rip a mouthful of mystery meat off the stick, and then lift the beer can to my mouth and drink. I look into the sky, and for the next several minutes, I feel unbelievably victorious. You see, here, the, the, here, this is what I'm talking about. It, the, the whole thing broke when it fell off my lap in the truck. Jonathan, you know, and now, so you know, on, on top of everything else, I'm, I'm screwed because I can't walk into work and return a broken tape recorder to them, you know, without seeming even more incompetent. Jonathan, are you even looking at the tape recorder while you're talking to me? Look at it. Look at the tape recorder. Yeah. Do you see that over there? What does that say? What do you mean? You had pause pressed. No, that this is the pause button, and you had it pressed. You understand? It wasn't recording. You had it on pause. Uh-huh. It's not broken. Yeah. What's the matter with you? Pause, unpause. Uh-huh. You see that thing that looks like an uncooked hot dog with a fingernail stuck to the end? Yeah. On your arm? That's your finger. Somehow, your finger moved along and pressed that button. It, it, it was never broken? It's recording us right now. This has all been recorded because I took it off pause. Watch this. It's going to record me saying, you're an idiot. See? It just recorded that. Show me a loser and I'm on your side Show me a winner and I'm terribly quick to chide On Wiretap today, you heard Gregor Ehrlich, Buzz Goldstein, Dina Goldstein, Zachary Clark, David Besmosgis, and the dog scratchings of Heather O'Neill. Special thanks to Jorge Just and Joshua Carpati. Wiretap is produced by me, Jonathan Goldstein, with Mira Bertwintonic, Wendy Dore, and Carolyn Warren. Tune into Wiretap Sunday at 1, 4 Pacific Time, and 1.30 in Newfoundland. You can also hear Wiretap across North America on Sirius Satellite Radio 137. Reach us through our website at cbc.ca slash wiretap. Show me a loser and I'm on you.